And so we're going to read Leviticus chapter 12 this morning and then pray and dive right in, um, understanding that things are not the way they're supposed to be. Chapter 12, verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a woman has conceived and born a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As in the days of her customary impurity, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. She shall then continue in the blood of her purification thirty-three days. She shall not touch any hallowed thing, nor come into the sanctuary, until the days of her purification are fulfilled. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her customary impurity, and she shall continue in the blood of her purification sixty-six days. When the days of your purification are fulfilled, whether for a son or a daughter, she shall bring to the priest a lamb of the first year as a burnt offering, and a young pigeon or a turtle dove as a sin offering to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her, and she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who has borne a male or a female. And if she is not able to bring a lamb, then she may bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one as a burnt offering and the other as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for her and she will be clean. Happy Mother's Day. Um, First Baptist Church of Grey Gables. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank Him for His word this morning. Gracious Father, we do give You praise and honor and glory this morning. We thank You that You have brought us here, that You have placed in our hearts a desire to know Your word, to worship You in spirit and truth, and to grow in the knowledge of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray this morning... As we study your word, that you would illumine our hearts by the work of the Spirit, that this word might be applied to our hearts, not just as knowledge, Father, but in a way that transforms us from what we were to what we're becoming, more and more like your Son, Jesus. That is our desire, and we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So when I actually begin to study down in, in Leviticus chapter 12, Leviticus 12 through 15 is really one unit. And we haven't used this term in a while, but it forms what we've often called a chiasm. For those of you who are familiar with that, you have in chapter 12, A, and then chapter 13 and 14, B, then chapter 15, A. And so what we're covering today in chapter 12, we're going to actually get to part two of that when we get to chapter 15 and talk about how bodily discharges make a person unclean. Um, Then sandwiched in between those is the provision on how to become clean when someone has uh, become unclean due to an infectious skin disease specifically. So aren't you so excited that we chose the book of Leviticus? This is what you really came here for. Um, But uh, no, this whole section... In chapter 12 through 15, it really belongs together as one part. And today, we're just looking at chapter 12. Um, I, I like to watch uh, what we often refer to in my house as talkie movies, um, you know, things with like a story and a plot. Um, and so one of those films I got the pleasure of seeing recently was a 1991 film, uh, because I'm old at heart, uh, called Grand Canyon. Um, and in that movie, it's got Steve Martin in it and um, a whole bunch of other guys. In the, in the movie, there's an immigration lawyer played by Kevin Klein who um, is coming back from a Lakers game and gets stuck in traffic. And while he's stuck in traffic, he gets impatient, decides to take an off-ramp and to go back through some different streets in order to bypass all the traffic that's there. While he's doing that, 
um, as the Hollywood movie would so happen, his car breaks down. And his car breaks down on one of these not-so-nice-looking streets late at night. And so this immigration lawyer gets out his phone, and he calls the tow truck driver um, and waits patiently, hoping that nothing will befall him. Well, of course, there suddenly comes a, a, a leader of a, a small group of the street type that come and harass him. He's got about five of his uh, friends there, and they start knocking on the door and threatening bodily harm to him and offering to relieve him of his possessions, we'll say. And in the midst of that, finally, the, the tow truck driver comes and kind of saves the day. He immediately gets out of his car and starts hooking up this car, ignoring um, the, the ones who are harassing this immigration lawyer and, and do, going about his business. Um, the tow truck driver's name is Simon. And so he pays little attention to the five men who are threatening life and limb of this immigration lawyer whose car has stalled. But they eventually turn on the tow truck driver, Simon, uh, who's interrupting their opportunity. And uh, though he attempts to ignore him, eventually Simon pulls the leader of the group aside and he shares these words with him. It's really a five-sentence attempt to share a biblical worldview. And here's what he says. The tow truck driver is played by Danny Glover. And I won't do my Danny Glover uh, impression because that's saved for lethal weapon only. Um, but uh, here's what he says. This is what Simon, the tow truck driver, says uh, to the leader of this group. He says, man, this world ain't supposed to work like this. I mean, maybe you don't know that yet. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without having to ask you if I can. That dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything is supposed to be different than it is. See, what Simon has done without any mention of Genesis is rightly explaining our situation after the fall. Everything is supposed to be different than the way it is here. There is something terribly wrong with our world. And like the scene from this movie, Grand Canyon, our text today actually demonstrates this. God's good creation has been corrupted and things are not the way they are supposed to be. Uh, the big idea is really this of Leviticus 12. The big idea is procreation has been corrupted. It now leads to defilement and the need to be cleansed. Procreation has been corrupted. It now leads to defilement and the need to be cleansed. That's really, if I could put Leviticus 12 in a nutshell, that's what I would tell you it's really about. And yet, I also want to say that that big idea can be even expanded and paraphrased. And I want to do that for you uh, today because you'll hear this kind of recurring theme throughout the sermon. Uh, it could be paraphrased like this. This is the big idea, paraphrased, expanded. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. That's it. Things are not the way they are supposed to be. That's what we learn from Leviticus chapter 12. And so I, I want to do this. I want to look at this chapter under the following headings. I want to see corruption portrayed in the text. And then I want to see corruption addressed in the text, both physically and spiritually. And then we're going to aim to apply it. And so we're going to have to go to the New Testament in order to see how this corruption, this reality that things are not the way they're supposed to be, actually impacts us. So we begin with the fact that corruption is portrayed in Leviticus chapter 12. We see a couple things here. What we see first is that childbirth leads to uncleanness. That's the first thing we notice when we read through Leviticus 12 is that childbirth 
leads to uncleanness. Verse 2 of our text says, If a woman has conceived and born a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. Verse 5, But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks. I really need you to put in context of last week when we talk about ritual states. Remember, this doesn't mean that she has sinned necessarily. This is just as, as regards to her ritual state, she's considered unclean. But, but put this in context from what we know from the rest of Scripture, right? Being fruitful and multiplying was a mandate from the Lord our God, wasn't it? In fact, procreation is not uh, is commanded in the Scripture. That's the second thing we see, that childbirth, yes, leads to uncleanness, but, but procreation is actually something that's commanded in the Scriptures over and over and over again, even from the very beginning before the fall. This was something that was commanded in the Scriptures. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28 tells us, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Even after the fall, the Lord reiterates this. It remains a command. He says to Noah and his family in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Then again in verse 7 of Genesis chapter 9, And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. So even though childbirth leads to uncleanness, certainly procreation is actually something that's commanded, which is kind of interesting for us to think about. But it, it wasn't just commanded. Procreation was blessed. Procreation was a blessed thing. It was a blessed enterprise. This is not, uh, this, this commandment, it's not just a commandment, this endeavor to multiply and be fruitful and fill the earth. In it, it received the blessing of the Lord. It says that in Genesis 1.28 again, and, and even likewise in what we just read in Genesis 9 verse 1 where it says, So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. See, the teaching throughout Scripture, and we're all aware of this, is that children are a blessing. right? If children are a blessing, then this implies that childbirth in and of itself is a blessed enterprise. Uh, for example, I love this text. I, I come to it often, but, but the text when Jacob returns from exile, remember he and, he and uh, Esau are, are beefing because he stole the blessing from, from Isaac, and he runs away, and then he comes back to them, and, and Jacob's all scared. He thinks his brother's going to kill him because he told him, I'm going to kill you. And then, uh, he comes and reconciles, and Esau falls on Jacob and kisses his neck, and he welcomes him. And, and there's, there's a great uncle statement in that text because uh, there are these tears of joy. Then he looks up, and he looks at Jacob. He sees a few wives and a whole bunch of kids, and he actually he says, who are, who are these? <laughs> who are these guys, right? Which sounds like an uncle thing in my head. Um, he says, who are these? And Jacob responds in Genesis 33, 5. The children whom God has graciously given your servant. These children came from God, as all children do. A blessing from the Lord to be treasured. Most of us are familiar from, with Psalm 127, verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. So, so how does this blessed enterprise, which was mandated by the Lord himself, become something that brings about unclean, uncleanness? As we're reading through this text, it, it should be a problem to us. From what we've seen so far, it, it should be hard for us to reconcile these things. It should create a question in our minds of how can these things be? And in short, the answer is things are not the way they are supposed to be. See, procreation is not just blessed, it's not just mandated, but, but procreation is actually also cursed. Procreation is cursed. The human activity, 
which was meant to generate joy in life, is now accompanied by pain and the loss of life. Listen, this is something that, that I think everybody feels, even specifically on this day, as, as much as we all want to celebrate Mother's Day, and, and so many of us are thankful for not only just the moms and motherly influence of this, this is also a day of great pain for a great many of people. People who have lost their moms even recently, mothers who have lost their children, mothers who may have struggled or are struggling with things like infertility, or or, or even just moms and daughters and, and sons who just have difficult relationships where this day is a reminder of the pains of this world. We all see this. Procreation in itself is, is cursed. The Lord even told Eve in Genesis chapter 3, 16, you remember? He said, I, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Now, the consequence of the fall and sin was not just pain and the loss of symbolic life, though. It wasn't just the loss of blood, which symbolizes life. It was also at times the actual loss of of life. We even see that with, with Rachel coming up in the end of Genesis. Life was often lost during childbirth. It's even to this day a dangerous enterprise, but, but even more so without modern medicine. I'll never forget uh, the, the first time I held my little girl in my arms, Addie, our first child. I always had this picture, I, I believe I've told you this before, right? Um, of this picture of this moment that I would just share with her and I would get to cut the cord and hold her and everything would just be perfect, right? Just long for this child for so long and um, it turns out as, uh, as a very addy thing to do, she ends up uh, swallowing some fluid on her way out into this world and then immediately has to be addressed and dealt by doctors. And I remember like just being thrust into what parenting actually is, <laughs> right? Just immediate, like almost holding my arms out, like when are you going to give me my baby as they're over there trying to break up the fluid and, and, and hitting her and, and trying to, to loosen it up and, and waiting for her to cry. And I'm just like, this moment is just stretched forever. What's happening here? And, and yet I recognize even, even this, what, what in my mind is supposed to be this blessed moment often comes with hardship and difficulty. And that's because procreation itself is in a cursed world. We've had plenty of those moments since, by the way. It's been wonderful. Listen, here's why I think we need to say this. It's because we've become so familiar with the curse that we can miss the reality that something is terribly wrong with this picture. Right? Look, we're so used to sickness and decay and corruption that often all we do now is just look for the natural cause of it. And never trace it back to its ultimate origin. That things are not the way they're supposed to be. That sin has brought a curse upon all of creation. That the unity between procreation and death is a disturbing corruption of the highest order. But I think in order for us to understand that, we actually have to understand what we mean by corruption. What what is corruption? What are we referring to when we talk about corruption? Well, according to Merriam-Webster, corruption is the impairment of integrity, virtue, or moral principle synonymous with moral depravity. It's decay or decomposition. But but I think when we think of it in terms of the biblical text, uh, they hit the nail on the head when they define it this way. They say, corruption is a departure from the original or from what is pure or correct. A departure from the original or from what is pure or correct. A departure from the good order of creation. And so what is it that we've departed from? 
What is the original, the pure, the correct? Well, well, in Hebrew terms, it's this word we've heard often used. It's shalom. That's what shalom is. Corruption is best understood as a departure from shalom. But again, if we're going to start defining terms, right, we can't just define corruption and then leave shalom out there as if we all understand what it means. What is shalom? I'm going to refer to a, a man called Cornelius Plantinga who wrote one of the, the best books I've ever read, um, The Abbreviarity of Sin, um, and for his description of shalom that's a little bit lengthy, but I think you'll find it very beneficial. Here's what he says. He writes, shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and as the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. So that's how we'll define it then. Shalom is going to be the way things ought to be, all things in right relationship to God. That's what shalom is. That's, that is what, if we're looking at corruption, what has departed from the original, right? If shalom is the way things ought to be, all things in right relationship to God, and we know that corruption is best understood as a departure from shalom, then that is what is broken, that is what's deformed in this way. Shalom is illustrated for us, by the way, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Right? In creation, God divides the light from the darkness. He separates the water above from the water below so that land appears. He plants plants according to their nature. He divides the night and day with a ruler for each. He creates animals to fill the ocean and birds to fill the sky. And finally, he creates land animals to fill the earth. And then, of course, the pinnacle of all of this creation, man and woman in his image placed in a garden with right relationship with God. All of creation living in harmony. No death, no blood leaving the body, no carnivores, even food is given. Remember, the first regulations, as we saw last week, are given that seed-bearing plants and fruits are ours to eat in that context. Genesis 1 and 2, things are very good, very right, rightly ordered, properly united, and divided according to God's sovereign plan. But then even after the fall, this picture is painted all throughout the Old Testament. There is a desire for this return to Eden almost, or a better than Eden. It's painted in best in Isaiah, what we read in our call to generosity. Let me read that again for us in Isaiah chapter 2. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. And it shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, now, neither shall they learn war anymore. It's a, it's a picture of a world of peace and and justice. Why? 
Because the Lord's on top of the mountain. That's a, a picture of, of a God who is reigning over all the earth. He decides rightly between men and women. He establishes justice in every square corner of the world. All people come to him and learn from him. Swords, therefore, are beat into plowshares, spears, into pruning hooks, and no one lifts up a sword anymore. Nor do they even bother learning war. That's shalom. Let me, let me paint one more clear picture here with the words of, of Platinga. He writes this about this picture of shalom. He says, it would include, for instance, strong marriages and secure children. Nations and races in this brave new world would treasure differences in other nations and races as attractive, important, complementary. In the process of making decisions, men would defer to women and women to men until a crisis arose. Then, with all good humor all around, the person more naturally competent in the area of the crisis would resolve it to the satisfaction and pleasure of both. Government officials would still take office. Somebody has to decide which streets are cleaned on Tuesday and which on Wednesday. But to nobody's surprise, they would tell the truth and freely praise the virtues of other public officials. Highway overpasses would be free of graffiti. Tow truck drivers and erring motorists would be serene on inner city streets. He goes on, but, but how far removed is that from our current reality? It's so far removed that it's actually hard to picture, is it not? It's so far from our reality that the moment we just stopped hearing the words I just read, we've already forgotten. We're so accustomed to things not the way they're supposed to be that it's hard for us to believe that things are really supposed to be different. And so spending that much time on words like corruption or on shalom was necessary because you can't understand corruption without a firm grasp of what it is that's being corrupted. And shalom is what's being corrupted here in Leviticus 12. It is the right working, the right relationship of things. And so with a vision of shalom fixed squarely in our minds, we can revisit our definition of corruption. What is corruption? It's a departure of God's original design. It's a departure from shalom. It's the blurring of distinctions, the rupturing of bonds, the perversion of goods, the pollution of the clean. It's the spoiling of health. It is things not as they are supposed to be wrongly related to God. It is actually what we read in the scriptures from Genesis chapter 3 to the end of Revelation up until chapters 21 and 22. That is corruption portrayed. Praise be to God, though, corruption is also addressed right here in Leviticus 12. It's addressed physically and then spiritually. We see corruption addressed and we see gracious physical provision here. Really, there's an overlap between these three. I'm going to give them to you quickly, so, and then we'll go back over them um, at first here. So for you note takers, make sure to write them down. We'll go back over them. The three specific ways corruption is addressed. First, in regards to the physical, it's addressed through rest. It's addressed through rest. It's also addressed through circumcision. And finally, it's addressed by a physical trip to the tabernacle. So rest, circumcision, and a trip to the tabernacle. We see in the text that a woman who has just given birth is unclean for 7 to 14 days as the time of her menstruation. And, and listen, there are so many things that are difficult to understand about this text. But, but we have to see that this is, this is really kind of like bed rest. This is written in a very 
patriarchal society. Right? These women who are considered unclean for this time, they cannot wait on tables, cannot do housework, cannot serve her husband or others for a period of time. Anything she touched or that touched her would become unclean. This was mandated rest. And in that it was very gracious. Because after that week or two she gets another 33 or 66 days of light duty. That's that's more than most of our women today get. (laughs) Maybe a couple women this morning who are thinking about reinstating that law. But rest doesn't sound so bad. Notice it, it's also it's either 40 or 80 days. Remember what 40 is in the Bible. 40 is a, in the Bible is a symbol of thoroughness, completeness. So her cleansing is thorough and complete. So first it's a gracious provision of physical rest, but then there's also this gracious provision of circumcision. In the case of a, a male child, there's this physical sign that is applied to the body of a male baby. This physical symbol is opposed to the symbol of the blood loss during childbirth. The loss of blood reminded the woman that things were not the way they were supposed to be. It was a reminder of the curse, but, but circumcision, on the other hand, was part of the covenant. It was a reminder that things would not always be this way. Circumcision reminded all of Israel that they were part of the Lord's redemptive plan to return shalom to the earth. It's a gracious provision. And finally, we see a gracious provision in the trip to the tabernacle. At the end, notice, it's the woman who brings the sacrifice to the tabernacle. The Lord had given a gracious provision to remove the uncleanness caused by the corruption. The walk to the tabernacle would have been a gracious and joyous reminder that God had provided a way of cleansing His people from their defilement. So corruption is addressed in physical terms, but corruption is also addressed in spiritual terms. See, this, this goes much deeper than just physical rest. We see it first in separation. The same way the the separation of uncleanness served to give the woman physical rest, it also served her spiritually as that separation reminded her that she was defiled. Verse verse 4 tells us, She shall not touch any hallowed thing, nor come into the sanctuary, until the days of her purification are fulfilled. So, So spiritually, separation is the provision Separation actually protects the woman. She's defiled. And so going into the presence of the Lord, as we've already seen in Leviticus, would be dangerous, if not downright foolish. She's currently unclean and corrupt. It's a reminder of the Lord's holiness, of her deep-seated spiritual need to be cleansed from her corruption. And it's a gracious reminder that this isn't the way things are supposed to be. By the way... We need to remember it's not a bad thing to be reminded that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. In in fact, for you, Christian, it's extremely dangerous for us to start believing that the world is is actually not that bad of a place. I mean, look, maybe things aren't great, but they're pretty close to the way things are supposed to be. Nothing could be further from the truth. Childbirth is not supposed to be painful and bloody. Childbirth wasn't supposed to cause corruption of uncleanness. A woman who loves her God does not want to be separated from worship for 40 or 80 days. 
I mean, look, some, some of our mothers here even know that experience very well. I know my wife, it's, it's, it's such a difficult time when our kids are sick for one week or two weeks and she's not able to worship in the house of the Lord with you all. There are mothers here in this congregation who feel like they're unclean if they're separated for us for three or four weeks because of illness at home. No one wants that. Or you shouldn't. Imagine being excluded from First Baptist Church of Grey Gables for 40 to 80 days. This law is a reminder that I am separated from the Lord's holy dwelling place because of corruption. Sin is real and it has tangible consequences. Hear me now, please. Look, we live in a day and age where we diffuse that very message with naturalistic reasons for everything that happens. We have psychological explanations for every consequence that befalls us. Meanwhile, we're dying a slow death from a lack of knowledge of our own sin. From its, own, from its reality and its consequences. Look, hear me. When you get sick, it's because of sin. Now, let me qualify that. It's not necessarily because of your own personal sin, but it is because of sin. When a tornado destroys a small town, it's because of sin. Nature itself is corrupted. When, when marriages dissolve, it's because of sin. When people die, whether due to old age, disease, or trauma, it's because of sin always. And it's a reminder that things are not the way they are supposed to be. And we would do well to remember this. Glossing over the disintegration of our world and lives with merely naturalistic reasons or explanations is a dangerous, if not downright foolish, endeavor. When we come to understand that sin is real, its consequences are everywhere, and corruption runs deep, we will begin to despair of our own superficial response to the world and its problems. See, here's the, here's the point. If the effects of sin are that pervasive, then, then what we need is a solution that's equally pervasive, equally deep, and equally powerful. We need to be united to Christ in separation from our sin. So we have not only provision here through separation, but secondly through covenant. It's a gracious spiritual provision is through covenant. Look at verse 3 of chapter 12 with me. It says, And on the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. I would just point out briefly that the eighth day is a symbol of new creation. It's the day after rest. It's new beginnings. And so a male of an Israelite child would be taken and circumcised on the eighth day because they were a new humanity. Women were not circumcised, but they were still children of the covenant. And so a mother watching her male child be circumcised was actually a gracious provision and spiritual provision, a reminder of the Lord's faithfulness. It would serve as an important reminder that the Lord was not finished. His promise to all of them, would be accomplished. So gracious provision of rest and separation, gracious provision, spiritual provision of covenant and circumcision, and finally, the trip to the temple, the spiritual provision of that is atonement. That is the, the third spiritual provision. We see beyond separation and covenant, we see atonement as a spiritual provision offered in this text. Verse 7, Then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then verse 8, so the priest shall make atonement for her, and she will be clean. A burnt offering, a sin offering, was offered by the woman on behalf of the woman that the priest might make atonement for sin. Listen, remember, she, she is not guilty of breaking God's law, and yet she's still unclean. 
Her defilement, like all defilement, posed a threat against the Lord's holiness and his holy dwelling. It had to be atoned for. And so the Lord graciously provides a way for her to atone for that corruption and defilement that had separated her from him. He established the means, he accepted the sacrifice, and she, through that, was made clean. And so, so that's what's here in Leviticus chapter 12. We've seen corruption portrayed and corruption graciously addressed, both physically and spiritually, by the Lord. But now we come to the question, okay, but, but what about us? Like, we're, we're obviously no longer under this law. You're correct. We, we no longer apply it, and yet this whole idea of corruption couldn't hit closer to home, Right? Because here's the reality, friends. We are moving from corruption to shalom. In the New Covenant, this is where we are. We are moving from corruption to shalom. Those of us who are in Christ are moving from corruption to shalom, and we must see things as they are. We must remember that things are not supposed to be this way. We must strive for shalom in our lives and community. We are no longer shalom breakers, but were like we were, but we are in Christ now separated from the power of sin. We've been redeemed into a right relationship with God. So how do we deal with this with physical corruption and spiritual corruption? I would I would say two points here. I would say at this point that physical corruption will remain until Christ returns. Physical corruption will remain until Christ returns. Those who chase after means, whether from God or otherwise, to live forever in this physical form pursue a foolhardy endeavor. Friends, these bodies are corrupt. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It was that refrain that we, we sung not too long ago in service. 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. So our bodies will continue to experience the effects of sin as we will slide towards the grave. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption and to the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. It's interesting that he uses there the illustration of childbirth. Then Romans 8, verse 23. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. That, that's what we, we hope and wait for, but that hope is seen, I'm sorry, but hope that is seen is not hope. In other words, Paul says, we don't have that reality yet. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. So you and I, today, what we're doing is we're moving from corruption to shalom, and we are waiting for physical shalom. Right? Women still bleed when they give birth. It's still, even in modern medicine, a dangerous affair. Now, they are no longer unclean, praise God. 
but it's a reminder that our bodies are still corrupt. Well, what about spiritual corruption? If physical corruption remains until Christ returns, what about spiritual corruption? Spiritual corruption is being replaced by shalom in those who belong to Christ. Spiritual corruption is being replaced by shalom in those who belong to Christ. Paul explains this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. That is a new shalom, a right ordering of one's spiritual life to God. He says, old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Verse 19, that is that God was in Christ reconciling himself, uh, reconciling the world to himself. Verse 21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We who are united to Christ are new creations. We've been reconciled to God and have become the righteousness of God. So so we were being separated from sin. That's our reality. This is a foundation of shalom. Remember, uh, shalom, all things in right relationship with the creator. So so look... do this quickly. If you want application points from this sermon, I, w- I would just recommend first this. I don't think these are in your notes, but you can write them down. First, it's this. Recognize the world is not the way it's supposed to be. That would be the first thing I would, I would want you to take away. So, so here's what this means. When we turn on the news, we are not shocked that it's utterly depressing. When we consider the plight of many around the world who do not receive justice... We are not shocked. Why? Because the world is not the way it's supposed to be. We long for shalom. We pray for shalom. We seek shalom in our lives and in our homes. And ultimately, we pray for the return of Christ who will bring about justice in all the earth. Look, when when Christ returns, the shields will be beaten into plowshares. The swords will be beaten into pruning hooks. No one will train for war anymore. Peace will finally arrive. And if you want a second application, those who are in our grow class on Wednesday night might laugh at this. I would just say, read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. That would be it. Write that down. Ephesians 4, 17 through 32. I've read it so much recently, I'm not going to read it here. But but what's it about? It's, It's about living a right relationship with God. And I'll just, I'll make this brief. I'll take a moment to point out that the primary emphasis on Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 32, is having one's mind right. There's an emphasis in the futility of their minds. That is those who are separated from Christ. There's an emphasis on their darkened understanding, on their ignorance. Futile how? Darkened in what way? Ignorant of what? Christ. They don't know Christ. So, so Paul actually says in Ephesians 4 verse 20, he just says, but you have not so learned Christ. He contrasts the mind of one who is darkened without the knowledge of Christ and one who has learned Christ. 
who is taking off the old self and whose mind is being renewed. This is how a new creation begins to live like a new creation. It is in the renewal of our minds. And that is just pervasive throughout Scripture. I could take you to so many texts. There are so many things we do in order to pursue shalom. Yes, but none is more important than pursuing a deeper understanding and knowledge of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 12 verse 2 tells us, and, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, tells us, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Our calling is to know Christ as He is revealed in the Scriptures which means we have to put to death our slothful manner in relation to our treatment of the Bible. We have to apply the faculties of our mind to grasp the width, depth, length, and height for God's love for us in Jesus Christ. We cannot afford to continue to perceive the world through the lens of the world. Instead, we must come under the tutelage of Scripture We must hunger for it, read it, and adopt its view of the world that all of our thoughts might become captive to God's Word. So in conclusion, Simon, the tow truck driver, is right. Everything is supposed to be different from what it is here. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. Shalom has often become a distant memory. Creation, our bodies, the news, the world around us all bear witness to this reality. But Christian, you are a new creation. Shalom has dawned in our hearts as we've come to know and trust Christ. See, see, Christ was made utterly corrupt for our sake that we might become the righteousness of God. His spilling of His blood is what breaks the power of sin. It sets us free and makes us clean. And so we set aside the corrupted ways of thinking that have dominated our minds for so long. We must renew our mind. Friends, I'll just tell you, I talked about this in Sunday school this morning. We live in a world that has cast its lot on distracting our minds that has put all its cards in one basket, and that is, turn your mind off. Even right now, there's a difficulty and strain in our culture to engage in a 35, 40, let's say 45-minute sermon. Let's say 50. Maybe it's 50. I don't know. (laughs) But even so, it didn't used to be this way, right? I understand that. It's it's difficult to consistently engage in in a lecture, but you wonder why that is? It's because the enemy's great attack against our culture is to make you think that in order to rest, you must turn your mind off. And in that, he has used his influence to affect your heart. Friends, that is where we're called to be different. We are called to at all times be renewing and active in our thinking. So we not be distracted by the things of this world. But we would recognize the mission is first. I'm I'm to glorify and honor the king who saved me with all of my life. And everything else 
comes under that. And the only way I'm going to know how to do that is if I'm rooted and grounded in his word. And that requires the renewing of your mind constantly. So friends, let us not lie dormant to the attack that's against us. Let us be a people who are active and engaging in our thoughts, in our minds, and in our worship of the true King Jesus Christ. Would you stay as we, or would you stand as we, uh, we close in a word of prayer? Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that we would come to recognize the the residue of corruption in our souls and flesh. Father, we're still prone to divide what you have brought together. We're prone to unite what you've separated. Forgive us. Cleanse us of that unrighteousness. Help us to see that things are not the way they're supposed to be. That corruption rules the day as the evil one continues to rule over this world system. But Lord, we are not those who are without hope. Instead, Father, in the gospel, you have united us to Christ. We have shalom with you. Lord, help us to catch a vision of that. That we might even work toward that this day. That we might be shalom doers. Would you grant us grace to do that for your honor and glory. That the world might know, might see that Jesus is the promised one who will bring shalom to every square inch of this world when he returns. Let it be present now in this body here at First Baptist Church of Grey Gables. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. Praise God. He does hear our plea. And he has promised that he will return and take his people home. And then... Everything will be the way it's supposed to be. Amen. Uh, if uh, you are here this morning and you are a follower of Christ, I, I pray that you are encouraged um, to know that, to know that things are not the way they're supposed to be, but in you, shalom has been fulfilled in Christ, and we still are awaiting the day where shalom will be recognized fully in physical and spiritual as well. Um, and so we do that together. We do that with the acknowledgement um, the understanding of what is going on in the things of this world. And, um, and we encourage one another to continue to press on in faith and in trust of the Lord and His accomplishment and His purpose for your very life. So recognize that, church family. Recognize that if you struggle with that, the world has just continually got you down. And you, you struggle, and part of that struggle is you've placed your hope where it should not belong in the fact that this world is in some way can be the way it's supposed to be without Christ, then you need the encouragement of your brothers and sisters to say our only hope is Jesus. But he is enough. So encourage somebody with that today. Maybe you're here this morning and, um, and you, you, you disagree. Like you, you think that, that things are and can be the way they're supposed to be. Friends, I, I would reveal to you that part of that is, is because you've created an idol in your life that you worship. And I, I know that to be true. I know that we were all, every one of us, created to worship something, and we do. We either worship our creator God or we worship some version of ourselves. Whether it be our pleasure, our comfort, our ease, our joy, whatever it may be, 
But friend, let me encourage you and tell you that if you're here today and you're worshiping anything other than the God who created you, that that, that worship is faulty. And it may feel well for you for a couple of weeks, but it will eventually let you down because it's not the thing in which you were created to worship. It will come crumbling down. All of it will eventually because, I don't know if you know this, but, but we're promised one thing apart from Christ here on planet Earth. We will eventually die. And at the end of your life, I've seen it many times, what are you putting your hope in? I've seen men who have put their hope in things of this world recognized by God's grace on their deathbed that it was all empty and vain. My desire is to spare you of that now. I can tell you there are many regrets on the day of one's death. But the one thing you will not regret is giving your life to Christ as King. It will be the only thing that matters on that day. And it will be the only thing that matters for all eternity. So whatever it is that you've put your hope in, recognize that that in its very self is a recognition that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. But yet God in his infinite mercy and grace has made a way for you to have a right relationship with him, to have shalom. And the only way that can be possible is by you trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, his son. You see, you were born sinful. You were born this way, rejecting God and his good design and instead creating a God of yourself and things that you should not worship. And, and left up to yourself, you would be deserving and earning of, of God's wrath and punishment because you have broken his law by choice. You choose to rebel against the, him and, those, and, and worship those things. And so if he's a just and right, good judge, he will bring judgment upon those who break his law. And he has. Your only hope is someone who comes and lives perfectly for you, who takes that wrath that you deserve on your behalf. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ has done. He came and lived a perfect life, earning God's favor and merit, the only one who could. And then taking on the death that you and I deserve, he made the great exchange our sin for his righteousness. And he purchased that for you. So if you're here today and you give your heart and your life to this one named Jesus who died and was risen again, then you, can you today can exchange your sin for his righteousness. And the God of the universe can look upon you as if you are one who has never broken his law. But it's not because you haven't. It's because Jesus has purchased your righteousness for you. He sees the righteousness of his son. So you're here this morning and you don't know where you stand in your relationship with the Lord Jesus. Please, let me tell you, it's, it's that simple. You, you turn away from your sin, this, this sinful lifestyle of you being king and worshiping self. And you, you determine by faith and trust to worship Jesus as king where he rightly belongs in your life. And then you believe. You trust and rest in his finished work that it won't be about the good things you do or the bad things you've done. It'll simply be about whether or not Christ has paid for your sin with a sacrifice. That's what a trust looks like. And as you trust, as you rest in the finished work of Christ, he blesses you with things like peace and love and patience and joy, gentleness and self-control. He blesses you in a reorienting of your mind to see the world for the way it is to see how worthy it is of your Christian living. And he creates in you a desire to follow him with every part of your being. So friend, if you're here today and you haven't placed your faith in the finished work of Jesus, then, then please make today 
the day. I'll be down front after our service. I would love to talk with you and share more about you, about your decision. All you have to do is is call out to him by faith. Acknowledge your sinfulness and ask him to save you. And he's faithful to do it. Is that not remarkable? Did you not hear what I just said about what you've earned and done in your sin and what he's, he's done for you? And the, the process is simply bowing a knee, dying to self and, and calling out to him. And you can be saved today. I'd love to talk with you more after the service. If you made that decision today in your heart, share with you what it looks like to live the Christian life. Church, it's been a great day to be in the house of the Lord. Thank you for being patient, specifically mothers. I know that might have not have been the ideal Mother's Day sermon. But it's much needed. Friends, it's not the way things are supposed to be currently in our day and age. But praise God, he has promised to make all things right.